Hello and welcome to Tech Weekly, a podcast by City AM designed to bring you up to date with what's been happening in the world of tech, crypto, fintech and beyond. I'm Nassim Da Silva with City AM reporters Lily Russell-Jones and Charlie Conchi. Later we'll be talking to Lily about the UK government's dive into NFTs and stablecoins as the Treasury looks to recognise stablecoins for payments and has asked the Royal Mint to issue an NFT. Lily will talk us through the announcement. But first, Lily and Charlie will be talking to Klarna's Head of UK, Alex Marsh. They'll go through the Innovate Finance Fintech Summit that was held earlier this week, Buy Now Pay Later regulation, financial regulation in the UK post-Brexit, the main differences between Klarna, credit cards and banks more broadly, the use of Klarna amidst the cost of living crisis, and whether measures need to be put in place to protect those who use the service from accumulating debt. So it's been a busy few days in fintech as the industry came together to mark UK Fintech Week this week, uh, the pinnacle of which was the Innovate Finance Global Summit at the Guildhall, where we saw some big announcements from government and the industry assessed the progress of the landmark Khalifa Review of Fintech one year on. Um, and we are very pleased to be joined today to mull over the week and more with UK head of Buy Now, Pay Later giant Klarna, Alex Marsh. Great to have you with us, Alex. Hi, Charlie. Yeah, great to be with you. Um, yeah, looking forward to the chance to look back on the past week. It's been a great week, actually. Yeah, so let's sort of start with the week with both, I suppose, your, your sort of Klarna hat on and your wider man of fintech hat on. How kind of successful do you think the week has been? Yeah, take a step back. We've had, you know, over two years where as an industry, we've had very limited opportunities to come together. And I think one of the, you know, both from a Klarna side, but also broader industry, just remarkable the kind of energy that you know was particularly the global summit which is having over 1500 people together in one place very much you know a desire to disrupt and drive better value for consumers i thought was remarkable actually an amazing range of speakers um yeah it felt like a lot was achieved and a lot of like new relationships built but also existing relationships have transitioned from zoom relationships to being proper in-person relationships which i love Yes. So the, the sort of backdrop to the week was kind of assessing the progress of the Khalifa review um, sure. and its recommendations to government last year on sort of how to create a, a big, you know, thriving fintech ecosystem. What have, what's your sort of take been on the progress we've seen on those recommendations? Yeah, I would. Um, if you think to when, we, when the Khalifa review, um, you know, started, you know, and I think I think it was issued February 2021. Um you know, the UK had a great place in terms of, you know, at that point in time, uh, standing globally, you know, London pretty much standing, I think, second place behind San Francisco in terms of sort of fintech hubs globally. And then the, the, like the positive step in terms of the review was to not be complacent with that position um, and the need to take further action to, you know, retain, but hopefully, you know, keep progressing, get to that, you know, top position ahead of, um, you know, San Francisco and the US. So I think... Khalifa review, great, shows the support from government, you know, and the importance of fintech, you know, more broadly in financial services. I think then reflecting a year on, I think I had a great chance to sit on a panel, you know, to talk through this topic. I think there's been really good progress. You know, if you look at the themes of areas like uh, regulation, there's been kind of government action with the, the future regulatory framework review to, you know, to look at what can regulation look like post-Brexit for the UK you know, without some of the shackles of the EU, but also skills. Um, you know, how can we make sure we're both developing skills, you know, to come into the sector, not just fighting over skills within the sector um, and bring in talent from abroad as well through, you know, appropriate visas. 
Um, and then the last area for me, which you know is interesting, is around how do we make the UK competitive for uh, you know fintechs to want to come to the UK and list in the UK. We've seen that through changes in um, you know the listing rules in the UK to put us more on a parity with you know markets such as New York. So lots of I'd say foundational progress, but still lots of opportunity to do more to you know keep making sure that fintech thrives and. We get that transition, I think we'll see, which is from sort of financial services, you know, will become essentially, or fintech will become financial services rather than being a sort of a sub-niche. Um, and so, yeah, feel very excited for what lies ahead actually from this week. So on the skills point you picked up on there, one of the surprise announcements uh, we saw at the, the summit was the delay to the scale-up visa, which was one of the kind of key recommendations of the Khalifa Review last year. I wonder if you could talk us through what the, the impact of that might be to Klarna and uh, the wider industry. Yeah, so mobility of skills has, has been, you know, in the past and will continue to be hugely important for Klarna. So if I look at the, the team we have in the UK, we have uh, around 400 people at the moment. There's over 30 nationalities within that 400 people. And that diversity and the ability to bring skills in, um, you, know, has, you know, has been absolutely crucial to the, you know, our success and growth that we see in the UK market. And hence, why we've been very supportive of the scale up visa as a concept. Um, if I if I think about it in terms of like general skills, there has been a lot of competition between you know fintech providers over the same kind of limited you know skills and talent we have. How do we address that? I believe the scale up visa could, as for Klarna, be a solution in the sense we can bring into the UK, for example, you know, a small team of you know highly skilled engineers and product managers. We can build a, you know a tech hub in you know you know, a city within the UK, partner with local universities and use that tech hub to generate and build new skills, you know, for us in the fintech and engineering technology sector that then become self-sustaining. And then that small team of engineers can move on to another city somewhere else in the world and, and replicate that. So the scale up these for us is really important. And we have, you know, we've been working closely with, for example, Department for International Trade um, and through them through to the home office and just really keen to get momentum behind that and get that visa in place so that we can move people quickly and they can have certainty that we can move those you know required talent and skills into the uk and sort of looking again at, at the uk fintech ecosystem and where it sort of sits within europe i think one of the really interesting comments to come out of the summit was uh Klarna's global chief executive talking about sort of how uk regulation compares to the eu at the moment said that you know there was a real impetus to create a sort of strong dynamic regulatory system in the uk um where do you feel we sort of stack up on that front at the moment? Where does the UK sit in, in comparison to the EU? So I think UK, you know, broadly has a very good reputation in terms of, you know, our regulation and um, the regulators that we have. And we're fortunate to have those in the UK. I think um, when we look at some of the challenges that you see in, in, in Europe um, and the EU in terms of, you know, the construct there is that to meet the needs of many different, you know, nations you know regulation has trended towards more prescriptive regulation sort of really laying out exactly how you know you should meet a requirement um rather than kind of principles and then allowing innovation and competition around that so we we at Klarna are very supportive of more principle outcome-based regulation so you lay out principles but then you give providers freedom as to how best achieve that and then you just monitor and track you know whether good outcomes are being achieved whether that's complaints or in our case mispayments so i think the uk post brexit has a chance to move away from some of those prescriptive requirements and we can see that from the fca in terms of for example the consumer duty that they've been consulting on which has a really strong focus towards you know the key parties making sure we're getting good outcomes for consumers and actually competition innovation we believe is one of the best ways to get good outcomes for consumers so 
again, I think progress over the past year, so much opportunity. We need to just keep that momentum going and, you know, the pace up because, you know, one of the things when you look at the Khalifa review, it's laid out very sensible roadmap and actions to take, you know, to be a, the leader in fintech globally. That is available to people in many other, you know, to other countries around the world. And you can see, you know, Canada, Australia, Singapore, you know, they're taking action too, you know, based on many of those recommendations. And so, we, you know, ultimately to retain our position, we need to be moving at, at pace um, compared to other countries and markets around the world. So on, on the pace of regulation as well, it's, you know, buy now, pay later is waiting for its own sort of regulatory clampdown. And it's been a year now since um, Chris Willard called for an urgent sort of regulation of the buy now, pay later space. And we've seen sort of calls throughout the year from politicians for that to be brought in. Do regulators need to sort of swoop in to protect consumers in the buy now, pay later space? So at Klarna, we've been, you know, we're fully supportive of regulation of the buy now, pay later sector. And we've, you know, we've seen significant growth uh, in popularity of these products, you know, as a better alternative to, you know, credit cards, for example. But with that, you've got new entrants, you've got lots of new products, they can look the same, but they might have different features or different charges. So to have common standards and common protections for consumers, regardless of, you know, which form of credit they select, but within that, which, you know, provider of buy now, pay later, for example, they select, I think is, is crucial to have for you know consumers to trust in these products and trust in the providers. So I think regulation makes sense. Again, I think one of the positives that came out of the Willard review was you know the call from Chris Willard to say there is no need to wait for regulation to take action. And that's been you know our, our mantra at Glarner is you know we've cracked on and made improvements to the transparency of the products, the affordability and eligibility checks we're doing, to the protections we have for consumers. Should something go wrong, whether it's a complaint, um, you know, or there's problems with the goods that they've received. So we've taken action um, from a, in terms of like implementing the regulation itself, uh, I have, you know, I have some understanding as to why that has taken time. It's, it's not that straightforward to, you know, uh, put in place regulation. And it's important that regulation is, is right, that it's proportionate, that it doesn't inadvertently reduce access to the sector. You've spoken a bit about the growing success of Klarna. We're in the grips of a cost of living crisis where inflation is at 6.2% and the cost of goods and services are outpacing wage growth. Understandably, people will be struggling to afford everyday essentials and they'll be tempted to access products like buy now, pay later, which can help them afford things up front. Are you concerned that it might not be responsible to give consumers the option to access a line of credit for items that are increasingly unaffordable? So a couple of parts to that. First off, I'd say, I feel a huge responsibility on behalf of Klarna and I think there's, you know, the same responsibility wider in fintech to support consumers during the, this difficult time. And if you look back time and time again, financial services has let down consumers at these most difficult times. So you look at what the banks, you know, the traditional banks are doing right now in terms of consumers at this difficult time, you're seeing interest rate rises. What do they do? They immediately increase the APRs on the credit cards that they offer. So charging consumers even more interest even though these APRs are already insanely high, like over 20% already, even though we had, you know, historically low interest rates. Um, and at the same time, they're not passing on that benefit, though, in terms of savings rates aren't going up. You know, they keep the savings rates as, you know, flat. So it's not like the consumers who do have, you know, fortunate enough to have savings are getting, you know, more return. They're not. The banks, you know, just look to protect their own profitability. So I think fintechs do have the opportunity to take a different approach here. And if I think about... What we're doing at Klarna, there'll be situations right now where people's finances, you know, they are, you know, they are stretched, you know, whether that's their energy costs rising, you know, other bills rising. And actually, 
I think in this situation, used in the right way, there's a really important role that, you know, for example, credit products or our, you know, short-term interest-free credit products can can do to support consumers. If you think about the simple scenario where it could be, you know, uh, you know, I've got young children myself. It could be that, you, um, you know, you need to buy essentials like nappies. It could be that there is, you know, uh, uh, a special deal on or a promotion on right now. To give a consumer the opportunity to take advantage of that and buy an item, for example, in bulk, uh, you know, three months worth uh, at that lower price and then spread that cost over three months rather than pay more because they're buying it each month, I think is a good thing. Anything that we can do to help save consumers money, protect them from paying extortionate interest rates on credit cards and avoid revolving credit, I think is a good thing. So I absolutely think there can be in the right situations, credit can add real value to consumers at a difficult time to to save and protect them. And from our perspective, the way our products work, we're checking, for example, eligibility on each and every transaction. So it's much more dynamic to if consumers are facing a difficult situation. You know, it might be that we've approved them previously to use our products, our credit products, but right now, you know, it's not right to use credit for them. And that is rebuilt really into fundamentally into our model. So I think both sides, I think, show that short-term interest-free buy now pay products like Klarna offer actually are a better alternative than, you know, for example, consumers using credit cards at this time. What kind of products are consumers using buy now pay later services or the Klarna services for in particular at the moment is it mostly retail yeah from from a Klarna side you know the vast majority of of utilization of our products is across uh clothing uh and beauty you've got a home furniture sports and hobbies consumer electronics they are still the core of um of how our products are using it. You know, another scenario, you think about it, my son Henry smashed my phone for about the fifth time again uh, just a few weeks ago. When you have that kind of expenditure, either to repair it or replace it, that's unexpected. Again, having that ability to spread that cost for something that fundamentally I need to replace this phone, um, but spread that cost over, you know, a couple of or three salary cycles. Again, when you have unexpected spend, these products can have, add huge value. Now, that's not to say that people should be using these, uh, you know, credit products for each and every purchase. We very much believe actually people should use the money they have for the vast majority of their purchases. And that's why, for example, at Klarna, we introduced last year a pay now option, which very, you know essentially works as immediate payment. It's a non-credit product. Um, and that way consumers get the same benefit of, you know, the quick checkout and the post-purchase benefits through the Klarna app without having to use a credit product. And we're seeing the popularity of that product actually grow um, significantly mm-hmm. since we launched that last year. Yeah, I just asked because the risk at the moment seems to be that people's incomes will be so squeezed that they're sort of increasingly encouraged to pay up front using these services for things which they can't necessarily afford or things which will become increasingly unaffordable as time goes on. Um, I know that I've spoken to sort of debt collection agencies who have had to deal with buy now, pay later consumers who weren't necessarily aware that they were accessing a line of credit. So do you think there needs to be more awareness and education around what it's responsible to use these kinds of products for? Yeah, that, I, I agree with that, Lily. I think there's two parts to that. One is, you know, being very clear in terms of, you know, how you market, you know, how these products are marketed and promoted that explains how they work and how, you know, they, they're best used. And then equally, when you get to the point where someone's selecting this payment method in the checkout, as we do at Klarna, we're absolutely explicit that this is a credit product when payment, you know, will be due back in terms of installments, the exact dates. And that's where, again, I think from the regulation side, you know, whether that's financial promotions or, you know, disclosure and checkout, you know, pre-contract information, that's where I think regulation can, you know, strengthen the sector by having common standards. Now, when it comes to 
consumers utilizing these products again just to be really clear you know we're, we're interest free our, our products are fee free to the consumer we make our money by receiving a small fee from the merchant you know it's related to the value of the purchase the consumer makes because of that model we have there's no upside or benefit to us in any way you know complete contrast to credit cards if a consumer doesn't pay us off in full and on time you know if they don't we incur additional costs to contact the customer we obviously all the way through to they don't pay us we'll incur credit losses and I think that alignment of model in terms of it gives us this really crucial incentive to make the right eligibility decisions up front. There's no benefit to us in a consumer missing payment. So, so much of our effort at Klarna is going into making sure that we're making the right decisions up front in the best interest of the consumers that use the products, but also for ourselves in terms of you know protecting the kind of sustainability and profitability of our business. So I see that as a very different model to credit cards, where if you think their model they're relying on consumers not pay off the balance on time to pay interest. You know, if everyone paid off their credit card in full and on time, the credit card companies would be out of business. There wouldn't be any revenue because their models are funded by consumer revenue, whereas our model is funded by fees that we receive from merchants. So I think actually that provides to a better incentive and better for protection for consumers in the situations where they do need credit in a difficult time right now. And if I look back on 2021, Use of buy now pay later products in the UK saved consumers over a hundred million pounds worth of interest that they would have paid on credit cards. So in a situation where people's you know incomes are squeezed or their costs are rising, having that you know putting that money back in the pockets of consumers rather than the profits of banks, I think is a good thing. Could I just push you a bit on the one hundred million figure because that's presumably assuming that the consumer is facing a choice between taking on a debt using a high interest credit card or using an interest free option with Klarna. But my concern would be that it would encourage people to buy something that they wouldn't have otherwise bought if they have the buy now, pay later option. Look at the stats in terms of the growth of buy now, pay later. So it's been estimated around six billion pounds worth of um, uh, annual spend on buy now, pay later. Mm -hmm. Um, It's essentially that growth. You can see almost exactly correlated in the reduction in credit cards. So credit cards has come down uh, 10 billion, 4 billion has gone across to debit, 6 billion has gone across to uh, buy now, pay later. So we're seeing, you know, the the vast majority of utilisation of buy now, pay later is direct substitution away from credit cards. So the 100 million saving essentially reflects if that 6 billion had been spent on uh, credit cards, Given that typically, you know, 50% don't end up paying off the full balance at the end of the month, given the average APR on credit cards, you know, uh, around 20%, this is the equivalent uh, savings of interests and fees that they would have had by using buy now, pay later instead. So it very much kind of reflects the kind of macro level stats you're seeing in terms of the substitution between credit cards across to buy now, pay later. Well, I was just interested on the, the point on banks as well. And I know that there's been a lot of new entrants to the buy now, pay later space. It's something that sort of banking banks are increasingly rolling out their own version of the products. <clears throat> I was just wondering what your, you know, what the impact would be on Klarna on the comp- the increased competition and whether you know that is going to disrupt what has been sort of you know a fintech dominated industry so far. So if if you start off like in terms of competition, in the first part around particularly within fintech, I think actually competition within the fintech sector has been a great thing in terms of. Ultimately, the ambition to compete to provide better value and better services to consumers. So absolutely supportive of competition. And you know, I think that's the best way to you know, get better outcomes for consumers. When you look at then, it's interesting when you look at the buy now, pay later space and, and competition there and sort of the banks. It's, it's fascinating to see how you know, two years ago, buy now, pay later, you know, lots of criticism, challenges as a sector. Um, 
two years on, you've got banks sort of rebranding both their credit cards or kind of high cost, uh, you know, higher cost short term credit, uh, rebranding it as buy now, pay later because of the fact that consumers are making that shift away from some of these, you know, expensive rip off credit products. Um, in favor of you know, what I believe is fair and more sustainable interest free by now later. So when I look at like, how are the banks doing that though? Back to that point around, you know, they're very much dependent on consumer revenue. How can they offer, you know, these interest free products? It's just going back to the same old like dirty tricks that they've done for decades. So they'll go, you know, Charlie, you can have, you know, three months interest free now on this credit card and spread the cost over three months interest free. Oh, but there'll be a, you know, a £15 fee applied to, you know, have access to that, you know, converting that purchase into that that structure. And that £15 fee is just a direct substitution for the interest that they would have charged if it's, you know, stayed as a, you know, traditional transaction. So, I mean, that's back to they have to find ways to generate revenue from the consumers. And they're just doing it in, you know, more and more, you know, bizarre and hidden ways that aren't transparent to the consumer to try and emulate these features. So, they don't have the relationships with the merchants that, for example, Klarna and others will have, which means that it is a merchant-funded model rather than a consumer-funded model. Now, the positive there is I think consumers are becoming wise to this. And I think that's why they're not falling into the trap of kind of adopting these products, you know, and taking hold of these, you know, sort of copy credit cards, sort of quasi-credit card copy products that many of the traditional banks are trying to offer. Um, Because they're seeing through that and this, you know, that's because they don't trust these banks because they've been poorly served by them for so long. So when we look at the comparison between buy now, pay later products and Klarna and traditional credit card providers, I think one of the key differences there is the way that they are marketed to consumers. And Klarna is that bit more vibrant. It goes after a slightly younger demographic, I think it's fair to say. Is there a danger there in the the way it's marketed and the, the demographic that it is going after? Yeah, so we consciously market, you know, Klarna and our branding differently to the big banks. Why is that? Because people don't trust those banks. The kind of the blue and grey of the traditional banks, you know, what do we associate that with? Poor service. You look at the Trustpilot scores, they're all, you know, the Lloyds, the Barclays, you know, the NatWest, they're all one star, poor on Trustpilot. So we had consciously wanted a different brand, hence, you know, the pink that we've chosen for Clara. And it is, it does stand out. And also not just that, the way we talk to our consumers is different. We talk to them in a much more straightforward way um, so that they can understand the products and that there aren't sort of all these hidden fees and charges and confusion. So we very much consciously have branded ourselves differently in terms of how our marketing and branding has changed. I suppose that's evolved as adoption of the products has evolved. When we first started, we are very much focused in the fashion space. It was skewed more to millennial females. But actually now, as we're over 20,000 retailers in the UK have used Klarna, over 16 million consumers have used Klarna. The average age is 34. As, as that's kind of matured through, so it's our, our marketing and branding in terms of making sure that we are talking to, you know, to our broad spectrum consumers that we're seeing in the UK. So I think that has... um. I think we, you know, we've learned lessons over the past years, but actually I'm very proud of the brand that we have and the way that we talk to consumers. And that's reflected in the Trustpilot scores that you see. So Klarna has a Trustpilot score of over four stars, excellent. Um, you know, we're very proud of that compared to the, the traditional banks. And, you know, in, in the UK, Klarna is very much known for its buy now, pay later product, but it's, you know, bank in some jurisdictions, it's spreading into new areas all the time. And 
what can we sort of expect in the UK? Is it is there plans to develop beyond um, the current sort of buy now pay later offering? Yeah, so our entry point to the UK was um, you know about buy now pay later products, and we have already broadened those out. So we have you know as we touched on briefly, we've got our pay now product for immediate payment. We also have a whole range of different uh, shopping services, again, to help consumers save time, help them save money, help them worry less about their money, which is so important given the current kind of external situation that we're all facing. So that's price comparison, deals, loyalty. I think if you look to some of our more mature markets where Klarna has been operating for longer than the UK, so we've been in the UK for eight years, um, but we've been Klarna has been running now for uh, 17 years. Uh, if you look to Sweden, you look to Germany, we also then have gone through into uh, the retail banking side, so current accounts and savings. And you know, I feel hugely excited for the potential there to really take on you know, the retail banks you know, directly um, because we've built up that trust and that relationship with consumers. The feedback from consumers regularly is they're having to create this crazy mad ecosystem of you know, different apps now, financial apps, to manage their money. You know, whether that's a you know, core bank at the center, but then they've got you know, the likes of Klarna and they've got you know, Revolut for spending abroad. You've got... Um, you know, the likes of PayPal, but, you know, all savings, chip, you know, all these different products. Fundamentally, that's happened because the core bank at the center hasn't provided good, you know, value products. So they've gone to, you know, other providers to provide all those services. I think what you're starting to see now, though, is that there's a desire for consumers to have that all in one place, um, but with a higher quality. And that's where I'm hoping that Klarna can be one of the providers that gives, you know, through a sort of super app with various mini apps within it, can provide all those products and services and the sort of holy grail is to get people to shift that current account that sits at the center um, and that's something that i'm hopeful that we can you know bring to the uk too in time to really give consumers a better alternative to the traditional banks and if we look again at sort of industry-wide view um you know there's as we said as we have discussed there's lots of kind of big regulatory announcements coming down the track this year at a sort of broad fintech industry level, if we chatted again in a year's time, where would you like to see the state of the UK and what are the big things you'd like to see in the next 12 months? Yeah, I think from from a, a, a regulatory perspective, I think accelerating the reform of regulation towards outcome-based regulation is really important. You know, one in our sector to bring it to life, Charlie, is, is the... Um, Applied to the credit side is the you know the Consumer Credit Act, which sits alongside various FCA principles and rules, and the, this dates back to the 1970s. It's 50 years old. It lays out exactly how you need to communicate to customers. It you know prescribes the exact letter you need to send someone on a certain date of the instant payment. Fundamentally, it doesn't reflect how consumers are interacting now, uh, where they're using you know the app, for example, they're getting reminders, they're getting text alerts. It just doesn't reflect how consumers you know interact digitally now. So I think that regulatory reform and moving towards more outcome-based approach rather than prescribing the exact way you do things and you know, moving on in terms of reforming the Consumer Credit Act, I think is something which would be great. And I think that's where the buy now, pay later regulation can be a stepping stone towards that broader move to outcome-based regulation. They can almost use it as a test towards that, you know, set really challenging targets for providers around mispayments, around complaints, but give them the freedom to innovate about how they communicate in the checkout or how they communicate with someone misses a payment. Because fundamentally, the existing rules haven't worked that well. So if you look at, you know, people's understanding of a credit card, six out of 10 people in a survey of over, uh, over 2,000 people didn't even know what the APR was on their credit card. So despite all this regulation saying you have to disclose this when someone applies for a credit card, you have to send them these crazy booklets with 20 pages and font size six of terms and conditions. People don't understand the most basic term. What is the interest rate they'll be paying on that credit product? 
So I think there's a real opportunity in the UK, you know, post-Brexit to reform this regulation. And actually that will drive, I think, more adoption of fintech, but also more competition, better outcomes for consumers and actually make the UK more attractive globally in terms of fintech investment. It certainly sounds like a very busy 12 months to come and we'll be watching closely. Thank you very much for joining us, Alex. No, thank you. No, it's been great to chat. Thanks so much. And now to the Treasury's announcement regarding stablecoins and NFTs. Can you tell us a bit more about what's been going on there, Lily? So this week, the Treasury unveiled a series of measures to turn the UK into a global hub for crypto, including plans to launch an official NFT and recognise stablecoins as a valid form of payment in the UK. The Innovate Finance Conference really was the place to be for fintech news this week, and John Glenn, the Treasury Secretary, announced there that the government will be legislating to bring certain stablecoins into the UK's payment framework. The government also wants to deliver a world-leading regulatory regime for stablecoins in the UK to support innovation. So what are stablecoins and what are some of their advantages then? So stablecoins are digital assets which are typically tied to the value of fiat currencies such as the dollar. So for example, the largest stablecoin project in the world, which has a market cap of over 80 billion, is Tether or USDT. And the idea is that each Tether token is backed by a physical dollar. They're popular with crypto traders because they can move more seamlessly across exchanges and decentralized apps than fiat currencies. Um, They also offer some of the advantages of crypto. For example, they can be used to make free cross-border payments without banks intervening and taking fees, Um, but they don't come with the same price volatility of assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I spoke to Tony Craddock, who is the head of a fintech industry body called the Payments Association in the UK, which is piloting a stablecoin linked to the price of sterling. He said that stablecoins are the most innovative thing that has ever faced financial services. So a pretty big claim there. But essentially, he says that stablecoins have the potential to be programmable money, which means that you can add controls to money that might not have otherwise been possible. So for example, if I as a buyer were going to make a purchase online, I could send the payment, but stipulate that it will only reach the seller once the item has been delivered. And so then you have a little bit more control over money. There's also the possibility of having a really clear audit trail because all of this is done digitally. So it might be easier to crack down on fraud and other financial crimes, or at least that's what the companies think. So you mentioned Tether there, which is one of the most popular stable coins in the world at the moment. Haven't they been in trouble with regulators recently? Yeah, so a catch of using stablecoins, like most of crypto, is that the space is not really regulated. So Tether, the world's most popular stablecoin, was fined $41 million by the US commodities regulator in October because they weren't keeping audited records of their dollar reserves. The way that Tether works is that it says that for every token it issues, it has a physical dollar to back it up in its reserves. And it was found that that wasn't necessarily true for the whole time. Um, that they were issuing this currency. And there was a suggestion that they had actually been lending out some of the reserves to make money using reserve capital that they had. They now have to release official audits of their reserve funds to prove that they do actually hold enough money, so over $80 billion, to uh, back up all the tokens they've issued. This has understandably caused quite a lot of... um, uncertainty and it's been a reason that kind of detractors have questioned whether stablecoins are actually safely backed but the UK's government has said that they're hoping regulation will improve consumer confidence in stablecoins. Stablecoins sound very similar to CBDCs are they the same thing and if not 
what are the differences? So I'd say that CBDC, so central bank backed digital currencies, come under the umbrella of stable coins because they would be tied to the value of currencies as well. The distinction which is normally made is that stable coins can be issued by commercial entities and businesses, whereas a CBDC would be issued by a central bank. So in the UK, the Bank of England and the Treasury are about to start a joint consultation later this year where they're going to look at the development of a UK CBDC, um, which would be basically a digital version of cash, which is issued by the central bank. But they said that the earliest that they can see it being rolled out would be post-2025, if they even agree to go ahead with it. So we're still a long way away from that happening. Okay, that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Alex Marsh for coming on. And thanks to Lily and Charlie. See you next week. Thank you.